Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books and Sports, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am your host, Paul Nepper, and today we'll be talking to Matthew Goodman about his book, The City Game, Triumph, Scandal, and a Legendary Basketball Team. This is Matthew's fourth book, and his work has appeared in several publications, including Harvard Review and Salon. Matthew Goodman, welcome to the show. Paul, thank you, and good morning. I'm delighted to be with you. Great. Thanks. Uh, Matthew, I wonder if you could start the interview by telling the listeners a little bit about yourself. Sure. Well, uh, I live in Brooklyn, New York. I'm a, a native New Yorker. Um, and uh, this, as you mentioned, this is my fourth book. Um, it's a, it's a, a style of book that I refer to as narrative history, uh, by which I mean it's a a work of history, everything in it is, you know, sourced and cited just like any other history book, but it's told in a kind of novelistic way, um, you know, with a real emphasis on characterization and authorial voice and dialogue and uh, narrative structure and so forth. And a lot of that came from the fact that I was trained as a a fiction writer. Uh, I went to graduate, I received an MFA in fiction writing. And, you know, spent a number of years as a fiction writer writing uh, stories and a novel and so forth. <clears throat> but um, with narrative history, uh, I'm really able to combine my two interests in both fiction and also my longtime interest in history and, you know, research, which I love to do. We can talk more about that. Um, so this is my fourth book. It's my third book of narrative history. Uh, the previous book that I wrote uh, is called 80 Days, um, Nellie Bly and Elizabeth Bislin's History Making Race Around the World. And it, it's set in 1889 when the young uh, female journalist Nellie Bly decides that she's going to try to beat in real life the Around the World in 80 Days of Jules Verne's novel and sets off uh, from New York heading east. Uh, meanwhile, a rival young female journalist uh, named Elizabeth Bisland leaves on the same day heading west. And these two uh, young women are then racing each other around the world, each of them trying to get back to New York before the other. So, you know, um, those are the kinds of books that I do, um, books that are true stories, historical events, but that have, um, you know, to my mind, a good sense of pacing and narrative and also take in um, larger issues. You know, they're dramatic and exciting, I hope, in their own right, but they also take in larger issues of society and politics and culture and so forth. Yeah, I mean, that that's one of the enjoyable things about reading The City Game is that it, it very much reads like a novel. So I could, I could totally see where you're your background in fiction came in. Um, so again, Matthew's book, The City Game, uh, is about 
the legendary 1949-1950 CCNY basketball team. And Matthew, I wonder if you could give our listeners a brief summary of what happened with that team and also what prompted you to write a book about this subject. Sure. Well, CCNY stands for City College of New York. Um, As you mentioned, the book concerns the City College Beavers of the 1949-50 college basketball season. They were the only team in history to this day, the only team in history to win both of the postseason tournaments, the NIT and the NCAA, uh, to win both of those championships um, in the same year. Um, They were a remarkable team. Um, They were a team comprising uh, all minority players. Every member of the team was either uh, a a Jewish player or an African-American player. It was 11 Jews and four uh, black players on the team. The head coach, Ned Holman, the assistant head coach, Bobby Sand, were Jewish as well. And this was, you know, only two years after Jackie Robinson had integrated baseball. Uh, It was a time when the newly formed National Basketball Association had not yet integrated. There were there were no black players um, in in the NBA uh, at that time, and yet this team was entirely uh, a minority team, and they achieved uh, unparalleled success. They they did something that no team before or since has ever done. They were uh, heroes um, in New York and really throughout much of the country. Um, And then, as I describe in my book, a year later, the story takes a turn. And coming back on a train from a game at Philadelphia, they arrive in New York. And four star members of the team are arrested by New York City detectives uh, and charged with conspiring with gamblers to shave points. Um, We can talk more about what that means. Um, They are brought downtown. They confess to having shaved points in three games during that season. They are thrown out of school and they're banned from basketball for life. Uh, They go literally overnight from heroes to villains. Um, They were portrayed, they've historically been portrayed you know, in the newspaper headlines and kind of cliched terms, you know, as bad guys, as as immoral guys, corrupt, greedy, willing to sell out their team for a a quick buck. But as I've discovered um, in my work on this book, the real story is far more complicated than that, that their motivations were actually quite complex uh, and perhaps more sympathetic than people might uh, have been led to believe. So that in a nutshell is really what the story is about. Of course, there are many other elements that we can talk about. Uh, I, I first found out about this story because my dad went to city college, uh, oh, wow. in the mid 1950s, just a few years after these events had transpired. So growing up, um, I had sort of heard a little bit about the team. I, I knew that it was, a you know, kind of a legendary team, but I didn't know much. Uh, I didn't know much about it, you know, beyond the kind of kind of a general sense. Um, and after I had had written my previous book, Eighty Days, and was looking around for my next topic, um, you know, the the memory of that story kind of popped into my head, 
And I, I liked it because it's a basketball story. Uh, I like basketball, but it's really much more than that. And it's really a, a story that can be enjoyed by basketball fans and non-fans alike, because it's really a story about larger things. It's a story about New York in the middle years of the 20th century. It's a story about this amazing institution of City College. It's a story about corruption. It's a story about youthful decisions that last a lifetime. It's a story about the way cities work uh, or, or did work um, in the, the 20th century. You know, the title The City Game refers to a lot of different things. You know, it refers to the type of game that was being played at City, the City College, but also to the way that cities work. Um, and, uh, you know, these, these guys, these players who got caught up in a vast web of corruption um, that they really didn't quite understand uh, that was really much larger than they were, and they, they paid the price for that. You know, you talked a little about um, the makeup of the CCNY basketball team. I wonder if you could talk a little about CCNY um, in general, the school in general at that time, what type of school it is, the, the, the demographics of the students, yeah. and what that school represented for the yeah. city and for a lot of people, because I think that's an important component of this story. Definitely. You know, uh, City College is a really vital and historic institution in the life of New York. Um, its, its central mission uh, in 1949, when the story begins, is really the same as it had been in 1907 when the, the great uptown campus in Harlem was first built, which was to take uh, the brightest of New York's high school students, um, kids whose parents couldn't afford to send them to a private school, and to provide them free of charge, by the way, this was a free school, Amazing. to provide them free of charge an education comparable to perhaps any other in the country. You know, it was very hard to get into City College. You had to have a, <clears throat> a high grade point average. You had to take a very rigorous test. It was a seven-hour, <clears throat> excuse me, seven-hour-long test uh, to get in. Um, but it was an amazing school. You know, to this day, I think it has more Nobel Prize winners than any other college in the world. Um, wow. Um, it was known as the working class Harvard, the Harvard of the proletariat. Um, so it was a very academically oriented school. It was a very left wing school, uh, perhaps the most left wing school, um, in the nation. Um, you know, a place where the great political debates, uh, in the, in the, the, the legendary cafeteria, of the school were not between Republicans and Democrats, but between Stalinists and Trotskyites. You know, that was really the composition, uh, right. uh, you know, by and large of the school. It was a, it was an overwhelmingly Jewish school, uh, 80 to 90% Jewish and had been for generations. You know, these, these were really the children of immigrants. Um, and, and by the way, remains to this day, the children of immigrants, uh, you know, a way for them to assimilate into the larger society. At the, now the immigrants come from all over the world. At the time, they were mainly Jewish immigrants. And the joke around city was that CCNY stood for circumcised citizens of New York. <laughs> uh, and, you know, this 
composition of the school was really reflected in the basketball team. Uh, you know, the school at the time was about uh, 80% Jewish and about 10% African-American. And the, and the team, as we mentioned, was 11 Jews and, and four African-Americans. Can you give people an idea? I, I, I think our average listener, certainly of, of a certain age, does not have a, a great grasp on how big college basketball was in New York City in the, in, at that time, in the 40s yeah. and 50s. Oh, it was much bigger. Yeah, it was much bigger than the pro game, for sure. You know, City College, like the other main basketball programs in New York, college basketball programs in New York, like NYU and St. John's and uh, Manhattan College and so forth, they, they played their home games, not in their home gym. They played their home games in Madison Square Garden. Um, and they would fill up Madison Square Garden, you know, on a Tuesday night, for instance, um, for, for their games. You know, you get 18,000 people in to watch the college game. Uh, meanwhile, the New York Knicks were drawing maybe seven or 8,000 fans to a game. They were not nearly as popular as the college teams. When there was a scheduling conflict um, and there was, you know, the Knicks were playing and the college teams were playing, the Knicks were the ones who got, who got bumped downtown to the dilapidated uh, 69th Regiment Armory uh, because the college game was really the biggest game in town. The promoter of basketball at the Garden, a guy named Ned Irish, um, once said that for him, the Knicks were really just a tax write-off compared to college basketball. So there was a tremendous amount of interest um, in the game. And as it turns out, there was a lot of money uh, involved in the game, both legal money and, as it turns out, illegal money as well. Right. Um, and I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit, kind of how prevalent gambling was on college in college basketball and how high it went up the food chain in a sense, both yeah. in the police department, the political yeah. world, all of that. Yeah. No, I mean – Jimmy Cannon, the great New York Post sports writer, said that basketball is the slot machine of sports. Uh, there was just a tremendous amount of money that was being bet on college basketball in those days. Uh, about $300,000 a game was being wagered um, at the Garden, much of it from within the Garden itself. You know, there were a lot of bookmakers. It was kind of an open secret. There were a lot of bookmakers who plied their trade inside the Garden. Uh, on on a you know the night of a game, um, there were about four thousand estimated about four thousand sports bookmakers in New York um, at that time. Uh, perhaps the biggest of them, a guy who becomes a major figure in my book, is a guy named Harry Gross, um, who was a Brooklyn bookmaker who was taking in twenty million dollars a year in sports bets, which. Is a lot of money, but it's even more when you realize that that's over $200 million a year in today's currency. Uh, so he had this vast criminal enterprise, and he was protecting it by um, shelling out a million dollars a year in bribes, uh, or as he called it, ICE, um, to policemen and politicians to protect his syndicate, you know. Uh, this was money that was doled out regularly every every two weeks, you know, like a government paycheck. His men were operating from the back room of a of a bar and grill in Brooklyn called the uh, called the dugout, 
near Ebbets Field. And every two weeks, there'd be this line of cops coming in to collect their envelope uh, from Harry's men. Uh, the detectives from the police commissioner's own private squad would come in literally with an empty bushel basket. And Harry's men would fill up the basket with cash and they would go out uh, to distribute the money to their people. Um, you know, the level of corruption that existed, a lot of it around sports betting in New York in those years was just staggering, you know, just jaw dropping. I mean, as one example of that, in 1949, Harry Gross, um, he was a very, very good bookmaker, but he was a terrible gambler. But he was himself, you know, a, a big time gambler. And in 1949, he went on a gambling spree and he lost a ton of money, uh, so much so that he could no longer capitalize his own syndicate. And he kind of freaked out, not knowing what to do. And he fled to California, to Los Angeles. And eventually he was uh, convinced to come back to New York. And he took a room in the St. George Hotel in Brooklyn. And uh, reportedly he was visited there by three high-ranking police officials who told him that they had raised $100,000 from their colleagues that they were going to give to Harry as a loan to uh, recapitalize his business so that, uh, you know, he could start it up again and get the bribe money flowing once more. You know, by that point, the police were not just his beneficiaries, they were his business partners. Um, and, you, you know, that's, that's sort of the level of corruption that we're talking about. And ultimately, as you mentioned, it went all the way up to the top uh, echelons of the city government. You know, that very same year, uh, the mayor of New York, William O'Dwyer, and the police commissioner, William O'Brien, both resigned, um, either directly or indirectly, due to uh, bookmaking scandals, you know, the Harry Gross scandal. So it was a, a tremendous amount of corruption around around um, sports betting in those days. Right. Um, it, it's it's evident to anybody who reads this book very quickly how well researched it is. Um, I, I, I kind of touched on that before. I mean, I, I stopped at one point in the first chapter and just kind of said, wow, because I was so impressed with how vivid a picture you painted of this this college, you know, 70 years ago, um, mm -hmm. from things like, you know, the lighting in the different buildings to the ubiquitous uh, pretzel bagel man on campus, whose <laughs> name I can't recall right now. What was his name? Raymond the Bagel Man. Yeah, so Raymond the Bagel Man. Um, just the, the detail was, was fantastic. And I was so impressed because it was so long ago. So I'd love mm -hmm. to hear a little bit about your research process. Sure. Well, thank you very much. I mean, you know, the, the I have to say, with this book, as with my previous books, the, the, the best responses for me that I get from readers are the ones who say, I really felt what it was like to be living at that time, you know, to be, to be in New York um, in the, the middle of the 20th century. Uh, you know, you really made that world come alive. Um, and, you know, that's the product of a tremendous amount of research. Um, you know, this book took over five years to do. Uh, at least half of that was spent just on research. I did at least a couple of years of research before I wrote the first sentence of the book. You know, I want to create as vivid a world as I possibly can for my readers. And the only way for me to do that is for to have a vivid sense of the world in my own head. Um, and so uh, I ended up interviewing more than 130 people 
for the book. I interviewed all of the surviving players from that team. Uh, there were five of them who were still with us. Um, and for the ones who were no longer with us, um, you know, I interviewed their widows. I interviewed their children, friends, neighbors. Uh, I interviewed uh, opponents, uh, you know, basketball opponents and, and fans and students at City College at the time and sports writers, um, just trying to soak up all of the possible details that I could um, about that time, about the games, about the setting, about the arena, about the school, the classes, the individual characters. Um, you know, I read all of the papers. I read the student papers. City College had three student papers. Uh, so, you know, I read all of the issues from the, that period. Um, you know, I went to the archives of City College to get background on the school uh, and its history. Um, you know, I just read everything that I, that I possibly could um, until I felt that I knew as much as I could possibly know about about that time period and uh, that I could, as best as I could, recreate it on the page. Um, and, you know, ultimately, of course, I had way more information than I could possibly use. But, you know, you just find a few hopefully well-chosen details that can really bring a world vividly alive. Right. Well, as I said, I, I thought that was really excellent. Um, so 1949-50, as you mentioned, um, the CCNY boys won the NIT and NCAA tournaments. Um, and then, of course, uh, this tremendous scandal hit. Um, you mentioned point shaving before. I wonder if you could explain to our listeners a little bit about what exactly point shaving is sure. and, um, and how that related to the CCNY team specifically. Sure. Uh, I'm, point shaving is the idea that a gambler is going to give money to a player, not to lose a game, but simply to win by uh, fewer points than the point spread. You know, the, the point spread is the number of points that a consortium of bookmakers has determined this team is favored to win by. So, you know, if you're favored to win by nine, you can win by eight or seven or six. So the players weren't trying to lose the game. Um, you, you know, their finely honed competitive instincts would have rebelled at that notion. Uh, they were simply trying to win by, you know, to come in as the phrase is to come in under the spread, to control the points so that they would win by just a little bit less. Um, you know, really, one of the things that I was trying to do with this book is to, in a sense, involve the reader enough that the reader is going to ask him or herself, what would I have done if I were in that situation? You know, it's very easy to say, well, I would never have taken that money. And it's possible that you wouldn't have. Not everyone did, but a lot of people did. Um, and you ask yourself, what if I were a poor kid? What if I were a poor kid and somebody's offering me $2,000, which is more money than I've ever seen, not to lose a game, but simply to change the score of the game. When, you know, you think, well, a year, uh, a week from now, nobody's going to remember the score of that game anyway. And, you know, every night I'm watching my parents fret at the kitchen table because they don't have the money to pay the mortgage. And I know 
that everybody else on my team is doing it. And I know that the guys I'm playing against are doing it. And I know that this has been going on for a long time because I grew up, you know, playing in the schoolyard and the older guys told me about how they were doing it and they never got caught. And nobody seemed to mind that. And meanwhile, everybody around me is getting rich from this game. You know, I mentioned Ned Irish before. Ned Irish began promoting college basketball at the Garden in 1934. He was making $48 a week as a sports writer. By 1950, he was making $150,000 a year, lived in a big apartment on Park Avenue. Um, So everybody around you is getting rich on the game, uh, on your talents, um, everybody in the garden on a college basketball night, other than the fans who paid to get in, were making money in some way off of the game. You know, the coaches, the referees, the ushers, the vendors, the bookmakers, you know, the, 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 the lower, lower, uh, bowl was full of bookmakers. Everybody was getting rich except for the players whose talents were making it all possible. You know, I spoke to one guy one former player who said to me, you know, I would go in to a game and I'd look up at the stands and there'd be 18,000 people there. And I'd think every one of these people paid to get in here tonight. And I think to myself, where did that money go? You know, he said, not to me. I was getting maybe five bucks a night scalping the two complimentary tickets that I got. You know, the players would go out in front of the garden and try to sell their free tickets to get a little bit of money. So everybody was getting rich um, except for them. So I'm not trying to justify at all what the players did. The players themselves, you know, in later life came to understand that what they had done was wrong. And not not just because they were caught, but because it was wrong to do that in a sense, it was a betrayal of their school and of their fans and of their teammates and ultimately of them and their own talents. Um, But I'm just trying to present a, a broader picture, you know, a greater context, um, so that the reader will maybe come to a more, to a broader understanding of the motivations um, of what made these young men, 18, 19 years old, act in the way that they did. Right. And I would add also that, you know, as you said, CCNY was a free, a free school at the time. So, you know, whereas now you could, I live in Austin, um, you know, University of Texas is huge here. Tuition is I don't even know what it is now, but certainly out of state, it's over $25,000 a year. So you're, you know, an an education at University of Texas could be over $100,000 a year. And you could argue, I'm not trying to defend, you know, this amateurism right now, but you could argue that they're getting significant return for their performance. But at a school where tuition was free anyway, it's not even Mm -hmm. like you were getting a free free education, you know, you could have gotten that anyway. So it was, you're really getting nothing in return for all the money you're making. Well, you know, they were getting a great education at city. Um, but there was corruption there too, as I point out, you know, right. in order to get into city, you had to pass a, a test and have a very high grade point average. Well, what the general public didn't know, but came out later was that some of these players uh, their transcripts had been altered. Uh, no one ever found out by whom. Uh, some of their transcripts had been altered to get them into City um, so that they could play basketball for City College. Um, 
one of the players, Eddie Roman, who's a this who is the center of the team, he was one of the major characters of my book. Uh, he had been convinced to come to City um, with the offer of a job for his father, uh, a job that never actually uh, turned out. Um, so there was all kinds of corruption that was going on, um, even even at City. Uh, you know, as I mentioned. Uh, there was this world of corruption that these players had grown up in, you know, they grew up in a, in a, you know, in neighborhoods where they knew that the cops on the corner were taking money from bookmakers. They were all, they were all on Harry Gross's payroll, you know, where you knew that the politicians were taking money, um, as ultimately, you know, came out in the O'Dwyer scandal. Um, so it wasn't like what they were doing was unheard of, um, in New York, in 1950. Um, so, so, um, you know, again, that's, that's, that's the context, um, that I was trying, that I was trying to provide. Right. Um, can you talk a little bit about how they ended up getting caught? Well, um, it's a little bit involved, but, but, um, the, ultimately what happened was that, uh, a player, from another college, a, a guy by the name of Junius Kellogg, who was the first African-American player at Manhattan College, uh, was offered a, a bribe by two former members of his team. Um, and he did not take the money. Uh, he, he, he told them that he would, but in, instead he went to his coach, uh, who in turn went to the cops. And, uh, you know, it, it all began to come out um, at that point. Um, the players on City College were arrested um, February 17th, 1951. They were brought downtown. They were interrogated in separate rooms. They were not allowed to call attorneys. They were not allowed to call their parents. Uh, ultimately, after hours of questioning, hungry, sleepless, confused, uh, exhausted, they confessed Um they went overnight, literally overnight, from heroes to villains. Um, the sense of shock and betrayal in New York was extreme. You know, I spoke to one guy who was a student there at the time, and he told me that it was a sense of collective grief that he wouldn't feel again until the assassination of President Kennedy. You know, that that was the the the, the sense of it. You know, they had been so beloved. In New York, they had been placed on a pedestal, um, and you know, as as high as they rose, that's just how hard and as quickly they fell. You know, we were talking about police and politicians before. You know, in the general public, there's this idea of like, well, a cop is taking money. You know, I kind of half expect that anyway, and a politician is taking money. Well, they're kind of all corrupt anyway. But when it turns out to be this kid who you've stood and cheered for, who you've given your heart to, uh, the sense of betrayal is, is all the greater. Uh, so they were really shunned uh, and spent their lives, um, you know, in the shadow of the scandal. They were never allowed, none of them were ever allowed to play basketball in the NBA, though some of them would surely have been stars um, in the NBA. Ultimately, Three of them, including two of the very few African Americans who were involved in this, uh, three of them went to prison uh, 
including the two most talented of them, Sherman White of Long Island University and Ed Warner of CCNY, who would for sure have been stars in the NBA. They went to prison and they were the first college athletes ever to go to prison for gambling related offenses. Um, And they were never allowed to play in the NBA again. I should mention, by the way, uh, since we haven't we haven't talked about this yet, that there were five there were five big college basketball programs in New York at that time. Uh, Four of them, CCNY, Long Island University, Manhattan College and New York University had players who ultimately got caught up and arrested uh, in this scandal. The fifth was St. John's University, which never got touched um, in the scandal. But as I describe in the book, which is based in part on documents that haven't previously been revealed, um, there's very good reason to believe that St. John's was also involved in the scandal, but was protected by a police administration that was overwhelmingly Irish Catholic and supportive of St. John's, uh, no less a figure than the police commissioner himself, William Patrick O'Brien, was a very close friend of the St. John's coach, Frank McGuire, uh, was referred to in the papers as the number one St. John's fan and often sat behind the St. John's bench during games um, at the Garden. Um, This much we know. Uh, There were also rumors, um, which I haven't been able to substantiate because this kind of thing was never done on paper. It was always done behind closed doors. But there were a lot of rumors in those days that there had been involvement, too, of the Cardinal of New York, Francis Cardinal Spellman, a very powerful cardinal, um, the, the second most powerful Catholic in the world behind only the Pope. He was known as the American Pope. Deeply political pulled strings behind the scenes. Um, And the word was that he had gone to the DA, Frank Hogan, uh, who was interested in running for governor in two years and said to him, Frank, I will support you in your race for governor, but you can't touch my boys, meaning St. John's. Um, So, you know, the word in New York was that St. John's had been saved by, quote, divine intervention, unquote. Um, so, you know, again, this is this adds to the general sense of corruption that existed uh, in New York at that time, that the players from the other colleges who were black and Jewish got caught and arrested and some of them sent to prison. And uh, the kids from St. John's never got touched. Right. I thought it was incredible that you were able to talk to as many members of the team as you did, considering how much time has passed. Mm-hmm. Um, how do those players look back on that team now? They look back on the actual team with tr- tremendous fondness and uh, a sense of pride. You know, they did do they did achieve something tremendous, uh, unparalleled. Um, and and they loved each other as teammates. You know, they were very close. The book really focuses, by the way, on the friendship of three members of the team, Ed Warner, Ed Roman, and Floyd Lane, two African-American players and one Jewish player who were very close friends, uh, which was very unusual at that time. Um, And they remained friends throughout their entire lives, um, you know, up through, you know, Ed Roman's 
tragic early death from leukemia, where Floyd delivered this incredible eulogy for him, which I, which I, you know, include at the end of the book, where he says, "We were brothers. We were brothers under the skin for life." Um, so, looking back on their team and on their teammates, they were very proud and very fond of <clears throat> of each other and what they had done. Uh, in terms of the scandal, you know, they had very different views of things, uh, depending on who you talk to. You know, the guy who's really the hero of my book in a certain way, a guy named Floyd Lane, who's, who's alive today, turned, recently turned 90. He's an amazing individual. Um, he really didn't want to talk to me at first. He was very reluctant to speak to me at first, which I understood. Uh, he put me off for, uh, you know, for a long period of time because he had spent 65 years trying to get out from under this scandal, trying to prove to the world that he was not the person that they thought he was. You know, he was a guy who had said no to point shaving on two separate occasions uh, and had only agreed to do it finally when he realized that all of the other members of the starting five were doing it. Uh, he ended up taking $3,000, he wrapped it in a handkerchief, buried it in a flower pot in his bedroom, and never touched any of the money except for $110 that he used to buy his mother a washing machine for Christmas because she had never had a washing machine before. But, you know, he was arrested along with the others and thrown out of college and banned for life from the NBA and then spent years trying to get into the NBA, but was always locked out, you know, blacklisted. Um, so I understood why he didn't want to talk to me at first, uh, because some of these memories are very painful. Uh, but ultimately, he, you know, and I'm very grateful to him, he did consent to speak to me, and I spoke to him for hours uh, on numerous occasions. Um, about his memories of growing up and playing on the team in subsequent years. And I'm very happy to say that when I did the book launch for the City Game at City College, uh, Floyd Lane was there. He was in attendance. Oh, wow. And he came up on stage with me, and we did the question and answer period together uh, side by side. It was really a very gratifying moment for me. Um, and I think it was a special evening for Floyd and, and really for, you know, those who were there, uh, you know, to hear him. So, uh, I'm very happy about that. That's really nice. Yeah. I mean, I have to say one of the, one of the things that makes this such an enjoyable read, uh, as with any book is the characters, right? And mm -hmm. you, you, uh, paint a picture of, of these complex individuals and, um, and there's a certain ambivalence, I think, if from the reader and within probably within the CCNY and New York community because they were good kids. And, um, you know, like you said, Floyd Lane, he just wanted to buy his mother a dishwasher and Eddie Roman just wanted to help out with a mortgage. You know, it's not like right. they took this money and went and bought drugs. You know, right. those were um, – and uh, so, yeah, I really enjoyed the character development. Uh, it struck me that – as as tragic as this was in their lives, uh, Floyd Lane, who went on to help thousands of children, um, mm -hmm. Eddie Roman, who helped children as well, um, mm -hmm. that in a way it, it, it might have actually made them better people. 
Do you think there's anything to that? Yes, I, I, I do think so. I think that they had gone through a tremendous hardship, um, you know, that they had, you know, they had really struggled um, and had really ha- had to come to terms with who they were and what their legacy was. And they made it through together, you know, with, with this very deep friendship um, that they felt. And as you mentioned, they both in later years devoted themselves to kids. Um, Eddie, Eddie Roman worked in what were called the 600 schools in New York. They were schools that were made up entirely of kids who had been thrown out of regular schools. So you could imagine how difficult um, it was to teach under those conditions, but he did it for years. Uh, Floyd Lane worked in community centers in the South Bronx, you know, in the worst neighborhoods in New York, through the worst years of New York's history, the 60s and the 70s, you know, trying to get kids out of gangs and away from drugs, away from violence, trying to get them to go on with their education. He got hundreds of kids into college, uh, you know, found them tuition money, you know, spoke to college administrators on the kids' behalf and so forth. You know, one of the kids for whom he acted as a kind of father figure was this kid in the neighborhood known as Tiny. We know him today as Nate Tiny Archibald, uh, you know, who had went on to have a Hall of Fame career in the NBA with Floyd as his mentor. Um, and, you know, it's interesting because when I was talking to Floyd, he finally was able to say that the, the scandal had been a kind of personal tragedy, but also, in a way, it had been a blessing uh, because, you know, he said to me, if I had gotten into the NBA, I, I would have been kind of untouchable. But instead, I got to touch the lives of thousands of kids um, in New York. So, um, you know, for him, it had been a tragedy. But for these kids, it had been, you know, a great, a great blessing. Yeah, absolutely. Um when I think of gambling scandals in sports, for me, the first one that comes to mind is, is the, the Black Sox scandal of 1919, where they threw the World Series. Um, and then, of course, the CCNY kids. Um, have there been any other gambling scandals, uh, gambling scandals in sports of that magnitude? Uh, those are the two big ones, for sure. Yeah. Um, you know, the Black Sox scandal, as you mentioned, of 1919, they were actually trying to lose the games, unlike the City College players. Right. Uh, and they never went to, went to jail. The City College uh, player, Ed Warner, did go to jail, uh, an African-American player. Um, <clears throat> there were subsequent scandals, uh, gambling scandals in college basketball, uh, not quite of the magnitude uh, or the kind of social consequence of the 1951 scandal. But there were several others. Um, you know, it's interesting because when you go, when you, when you read the accounts or the, the contemporaneous accounts of the uh, arrests and the trial and so forth, ultimately 33 players uh, from around the country were involved, you know, from other teams, including Kentucky and Bradley were the number one and number two seeded teams in the country um, at that time. Um, people said, well, you know, we 33 kids, we, you know, we've sort of rooted out the problem. You know, we're done with point shaving uh, in college basketball. But just 10 years later, there was another point shaving scandal in college basketball in 1961. And then there was another one in the 
1970s at Boston College, and there was another one in the 80s and another one in the 90s. Um, and there's no reason to believe that there won't be others um, in the future. You know, all of the conditions that existed in 1950 to allow for this scandal are even worse today. Right. You know, the amount more of money. money flowing through the game is far greater today than it was in 1950. Nat Holman, the legendary head coach of City College, was making $8,500 a year as coach, uh, which is equivalent to about $9,000, $90,000 today. Well, you know, John Calipari at Kentucky makes upwards of $7 million a year in salary. Uh, Mike Krzyzewski at Duke, upwards of $7 million a year. There are 69 Div One men's college basketball coaches who make more than a million dollars a year in salary. You have head coaches who are the highest paid municipal employees in the state, uh, you know, as, as, as college coaches. Uh, the NCAA, the NCAA, uh, recently received an $8.8 billion TV contract. You know, you have colleges that are taking in millions from sneaker companies, you know, using the players to advertise their, their products. You know, the players become like NASCAR cars, you know, full of, you know, full of promotions. Right. Um, so there's a tremendous amount of money flowing through the game, and yet the players themselves are not allowed to touch any of it. You know, it's a situation that's almost unique in American society, maybe is unique in American society, where you have a group of young, talented people, many of them poor, uh, who are able to make enormous profits for other people, but are not allowed to touch any of those profits for themselves. As long as you have that situation, you're always going to have, a, you know, a fertile ground for, for bribery. Um, so it may well be that we haven't seen the end of point shaving scandals in college basketball. Yeah. Well, I've taken enough of your time, Matthew. I'll, I'll ask you one final question that I like to ask all my guests. What is your favorite sports book of all time? Oh, wow. My favorite sports book of all time. The, uh, wow. That's a great question. I'm going to think about it for a second. Probably the first sports book that I ever just loved, and I've read over the years uh, so many times, was Ball Four, mm. uh, Jim Bouton's book, um, because it just kind of, um, it was so smart and so knowing and so funny and had such a great sensibility to it and gave, you know, opened up a kind of adult world to me. Um, I read it when I was about 13. Mm-hmm. for the first time. Um, and it just really made me think in a different way about American sports, uh, you know, especially baseball. So I would say that maybe that was, uh, maybe that, maybe that was my all time favorite sports book. I would say. Great answer. It's a great book. Um, okay. Well, Matthew, thank you so much for your time. Again, Matthew's book is called The City Game, Triumph, Scandal, and a Legendary Basketball Team. It's a great read. Uh, as, as Matthew touched upon, he has a history in fiction, and that really comes through because it reads, it flows like a novel. Um, the description is, is fantastic, and 
it, it covers so many elements. If you're a basketball fan, if you're a history fan, if you're interested in New York City, if you're interested in how cities work, if you're interested in the whole gambling racket, um, he really hits on all of those things. And then even if you're not interested of any of those things, it's a great story about um, triumph and tragedy and, and perseverance, really. And so I highly recommend this book. Matthew, thank you again for, for coming on the podcast. I really enjoyed it. Well, thank you. It was uh, really fun to, to speak. Thanks so much.